the other audience was um, uh, kind of, you know, nerdy people who uh, like queers who read books about queers uh, and queer history and queer theory um, to kind of bring geography to them, to bring like other, like I think queer theory has been so beautifully, but mostly produced in the humanities and some anthropology um, and to, and there's a touch of sociology and touch a little, and there's a touch of everything else. Um, but I really wanted to bring geography into that conversation. Cause I think, um, like every LGBTQ history to me was so spatial, was so geographical. It's always about the bar or the park or the, um, or the house or wherever, you know, whatever that space is. And we're fixated on those spaces of the streets or Stonewall. And so how could we, uh, how could we think differently about space and organize differently? everyone welcome to pride month um i cannot wait for all of our upcoming june episodes so although this is being recorded in may i'm not going to give you too much of the behind the scenes it's pride month uh so welcome and i am so excited because first i'm joined for the first time not as a guest but as a co-host stephanie bonvasudo hi stephanie hi everyone um and we are both joined by Dr. Jack Gieskin, who is assistant professor of geography at the University of Kentucky and co-editor of the People, Place, and Space Reader. And we are here to talk with Jack about A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers from 2020. So without further ado, Jack is here. So hi, Jack. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah, no, thank you. This has just been so exciting because I was telling Stephanie the first time I actually saw your book was at Barnes and Noble on Long Island um, in a Pride Month um, area. And it was just, you know, right there next to Jeremy Lin's gay bar book. Oh my God, <laughs> that's so, so funny. I was so excited. Well, did you know that your book is in Barnes and Noble and is so commercial? No, like, and I'm not even on the gay shelf. Like I'm on the gay table like that, you know, like the, 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 LG, the lesbian and gay shelf of the nineties, I, I made it all the way to the pride table. I'm shocked. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like I know those geographies so well. Um, so no, I had no idea. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, and I think starting with just how I found it at Barnes and Noble, like who were you thinking of as your intended audience when you were working on a queer New York? I really wanted, I, um, I really didn't want to write, I, I, two audiences. I think the first audience was really lesbian, stags, queers, trans, bisexual, gay people who wanted to know more about why they couldn't afford to live in New York and why, you know, and why they thought they belonged to New York and um, how they were important to New York and all the work they did for New York um, in, in producing uh, so much of, of how we think about diversity and difference and radicality in New York City um, and beauty. Um, 
and also how they took part in gentrification, how they had to be held more accountable for that too. Um, because this, this group of people um, who I call lesbians, dykes, and queers in the book, um, but um, who I would, who I, in my next book, I'm going to call lesbian, queer, trans people as a big group of people who like to somehow hang out in that way. Um, uh, uh, that they have often a radical agenda because they're put in situations like um, um, uh, like uh, Supreme Court uh, statutes being overturned, rights to privacy issues like that, um, where they uh, know that they're uh, suffering and they, they try to work towards justice um, so that they would actually care to know how they got there, what happened to them. Um, and I wanted to know these stories. So that was really exciting to me. The other audience was um, uh, kind of, you know, nerdy people who uh, like queers who read books about queers uh, and queer history and queer theory um, to kind of bring geography to them, to bring like other, like I think queer theory has been so beautifully, but mostly produced in the humanities and some anthropology um, and to, and there's a touch of sociology and touch a lot and there's a touch of everything else. Um, but I really wanted to bring geography into that conversation because I think, um, like every LGBTQ history to me was so spatial, was so geographical. It's always about the bar or the park or the um, or the house or wherever, you know, whatever that space is. And we're fixated on those spaces of the streets or Stonewall. And so how could we, uh, how could we think differently about space and organize differently? Yeah. So, so Jack, if I may, um, one group that you didn't mention there was academics. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Um, I. I, I think that I wrote, I just feel like there's so many queer and trans academics that they would be in, in that group. Um, but I, uh, and I, I've, I guess I also wanted to write for geography as a field to read more about queer and trans people. So that would probably be the third audience. Mm. They're reading it, which is so exciting to me. We don't have, um, you know, geography writes a lot of Routledge books, writes a lot of, um, so to the audience that would be, you know, more goes into a library kind of book um, and is not sold at a Barnes and Noble at all. And so I wanted them to, to think critically more about queer and trans, which has been really kind of a siloed, isolated, kind of field of study um, and to, to that to be more, you know, to be more central to what we do and how we think. Because feminist geography has always been a thing, but queer geography has been tiny and trans geography is much tinier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I also, yeah, I like I felt like I was in conversation with people. That was my goal too, like, you know, like writing, like I've been reading like Jack Halberstam. I read Jack Halberstam in a queer time and place in grad school. It came out like at the end of my first year. I was like, this is the thing that I needed. You know, when you find them. Like, mm -hmm. oh. And yeah, so that book has was like such an inspiration to me. Um, and Catherine McKittrick, who I love and adore mm -hmm. and who's like, guided so much more. So all these people. Yeah. So um, yeah. I think I tried to cite everyone too, because I thought if anyone ever wants to do this or to talk across all these ways of thinking, because there's a lot of like census data I cite, and there's a lot of big statistical studies, and I wanted people to be able to find all those things and, and think in those ways too. Like whatever whatever way you read queerness and, and that you could see yourself represented, I wanted that to be familiar to people and, and connect to different ways of thinking too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and I think what's so fascinating, Jack, as you're talking is so many LGBTQ, whether they're creative writers, academics, who've come on the ivory tower boiler room speak to exactly what you're saying, which is this crossover appeal in a way where, and that's our whole mission here, but where it's not just for academic audiences or feels so distant from the general public. And that's what I love about a queer New York is you even reference your admiration for uh, George Chauncey's Gay New York. So I'm kind of, which again, to me is a really great crossover book. So, you know, can you speak about Gay New York? Like I saw that. Yeah. So like baby gay me in 1993 saw that in the Baltimore LGBTQ bookstore in the, in, it was a big display and I saw the two and the cover of gay New York, for those who haven't seen it is two um, gay men in, in, in coats and tails, like tuxedos. And I thought, Oh, I guess that gay people are all really rich or we play the piano for them. Like that was my, like I, and I was too scared to go in and get the book. I was just, I was just, I would drive by and like stare from my car. I was so afraid to go in. Um, and then I found that book in the library. I went to Mount Holyoke, super gay place. And, you know, um, I was enthralled. Um, and I've probably read that book a dozen times in my life. Um, and uh, in the beginning, he says that he couldn't, he wanted to write about lesbians, but he couldn't. Um, uh, because, you know, they're, they're not in the arrest records in the same ways, of course. And then when I was in the Lesbian History Archives, there's these amazing mentions all over the organizational records of George Chauncey is working on his dissertation. He's a young lad at Yale. And, you know, he's, he's you know, or is it Chicago? I forget. And because he's the other at Yale. And, oh, he's, he's going to give a talk. He's writing a hundred year history. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. He thought he'd write a hundred years. You know, like I could see George Chauncey as a grad student. And, you know, so he was like in this journey with me as much as like Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich's box is like seeing him pop up. Um, and I thought that book, I just thought that was the bee's knees. I've given it to people for presents a million times. So like having to like, that was, I think that was a real inspiration. And it was going to be called Queer New York. And I was dating someone who was like, this is just one version of it. I was like, oh my God, obviously it's a queer New York, right? So that's where the title came mm. from. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I yeah. love that. You bring up Gay New York. No, I love Gay New York so much. Well, like, and when you're talking about what you found that book, I love that feeling when we can all trace when we've maybe found ourselves in a book or you just really want to cultivate whatever you found in that book. And for me, it was when I got Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, I was so excited with these queer readings of literature. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, also, shout out to Jack Halberstam, who I love. And Gaga mm-hmm. Feminism is such an intriguing book. Yes, yeah, Stephanie. I was about to say that was, that was my book. I teach that in my courses. Um, and I think it's so timely. And I love that the students will look at that title, especially if they don't know Jack's work, right? So I'm like, okay, you, you have to know what scavenger methodology is. And just be prepared to come across Lady Gaga and SpongeBob SquarePants. That's going to happen in these works. And they love it. It makes, you know, really deep, provocative um, feminist theory so accessible to them. So, yeah. 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 Well, and something that happens in your preface that I would love for you to talk about is the way you explore your identity in the preface of even what it was like as you were writing and your identity was changing. If you're comfortable expressing that, I thought it was 
such a really profound moment of understanding who we are as people and how that can change during a process of writing. Yeah, I think it, I think it's important to share because I think people want to know who wrote this book, right? Who is this person that's telling our stories? And also like, I, I'm just a human person too. So it's nice. And I want, like, I want everyone to be able to share their stories. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, I had gone, I, I, um, I figured out I was, I had a crush on a cheerleader in high school. Um, she spoke French. I thought she was very deep and I was like, okay, I'm gay and I'm going to go away to college and I, you know, I won't die in Catholic Baltimore. And I, you know, I got to college and I was really, really good at being lesbian. I memorized the entire Indigo Girls catalog. I was like all for it. You know, I, you know, was in it to win it. And then I went to New York and all these people were taking hormones, uh, you know, and what's the, you know, I was such the nerd. I was like, what's the long-term effects? Where's the data? You know, even as like a 23 year old and, um, you know, all the, the, the ability to have these, um, different health centers and these in different cities, like Callan Lord was giving out estrogen, testosterone, like what's, Mm. wow, what's going to happen to us. And then to watch these fights happen in these bars, I always felt like an, I always felt like I, what didn't I always just felt like I was watching like there was someone who was better at being a queer than I was you know like everybody else knows how to do this right like there's a way to be gay um and then I was like okay now I got to be queer and then I I realized I was trans in my master's program I read a definition and it said includes transvestites and people were closely opposite gender I was like oh my god I'm a transvestite holy cow because it's you know really identified as butch and so it was like all these things that oh like I kept changing and I was like god now I'm trans and I have to do that and so that was a really long time coming like I didn't know there was me and Paisley Cura at the grad center and I never talked to him about it um I think he knew that I identified as trans. And then Mickey Kaufman came, who was another grad student. Um, and there weren't people weren't like people started to more identify a little bit more like a few years later. And that was like such a relief. People were very affirming that the CUNY Graduate Center, which is very like home of Marxist uh, radical thinking. Um, but I was doing my research in this moment, like I, one of my participants says, I think it's in this book. I don't know if I say it from the next one. Like, it would be weird to go to a bar and there wouldn't be a trans person now in 2007 or 2008. Um, but that had just happened. And so I was like, I hadn't changed my name yet. I hadn't taken hormones. I had not top surgery. Um, I hadn't even known if I would do that. I was, you know, just trying to do my dissertation. I was so nervous about that. Um, I feel like this is a long answer. You should obviously edit it for, for no, everyone. No, no, no. This is, these are the moments we live for because mm-hmm. you've just got into the heart of your process. And I'm, you know, okay. we should hear more from you because this is your discovery. Oh, okay. I was like, oh God, is it so Yeah. Long? Well, hopefully then- it like helps you understand like, you know, your oh. positionality. And like, I'm, Stephanie and I are so curious about like how positionality works in your book, because it is so important of like, whether it be that moment when you talk about um, like land that was stolen from native Americans or, um, you know, like identifying um, with a certain gender or sexuality, or like, you know, it's important that I'm a gay white cisgender man that informs how I'm going to look at certain, you know, objects that I'm analyzing. So yeah, I'm I'm so thankful you took okay. us yeah. through that. 
And to add to that, if there is a phenomenological component to this. Oh, well, it as an answer. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like all these all these lesbians and queers walking into the room and they see me and they see Butch me right in a Brooks Brothers shirt because I had big boobs and a double and they Brooks Brothers was great at covering up a big rack if you wanted to have a nice butch shoulder. And I was just they saw me and they would tell me things because and I'm white um, and queer, mm -hmm. um, but I was a, a known object to them. Right. And I was recognizable to them and I was a safe in that way. And I think if I had been femme identified, I don't think a lot of those stories would have come out. Um, and I think especially stories from uh, queer and trans people of color who were in my research, who saw you know, my gender, who would reference my gender identity as, oh, I will tell you this because of this, right? Um, and yeah, I, and I think you know, as I wrote it, I was really struggling then I changed my, I'm struggling to like think about how I wrote about it. In the book, I don't talk a lot about butches. And I don't talk a lot about trans people. Um, and I found it hard. It was talk, not being able to talk about myself yet. Like the next book has a, a lot more about that in it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think like writing it at first, it was supposed to be a chapter about bars and a chapter about neighborhoods and a chapter about cities. And I had hundred pages on neighborhoods and I hired a developmental editor. Like, it's a book about neighborhoods. I was like, no. I hate neighbors. I don't want to write a book about neighborhoods. It's so boring. And then I went on this long run in Portland. I had a postdoc in, in Bowdoin and I almost, I, I, I got sick at the end of the run. I've never run so far in my life. And then I was like, it's about gentrification. I can write about gentrification. And that's how it became. I was like, oh, we have a lot to say about that. And then, and then as I kept writing about the political economy, like I wasn't writing about Marxism in that way. Yet. Um, I started to see how it affected my life, right? How it shaped all of where we lived and how we acted and the U-hauling is, is, is a political economic phenomenon. I didn't see that for a long time. Um, like it was building the pieces and rereading things and going through the archival data and then seeing like how limited we were about where we could live and how much money it was to find a new place to live. Um, and yeah, so I think that struggle. And then um, I, I finished the, uh, I had top surgery when I got my first job. I mean, each thing is like, okay, well, I feel a little bit safer. I'll do this next thing. Right. And I think for, I also share this for trans academics who think about these things. Like people will reach out to me. When did you change your name? How do you put it on publications? Um, I published one thing is Jen and then everything was Jen Jack. Um, and I'm going to, I think I'm going to switch it to Jack Jen. I haven't decided yet, but it's headed that way. And, um, and then I finished the book and I, I walked down the stairs. I had sent the proofs to the NYU editors are like, don't you dare make one more change because I was one of those people. And then I hit the bottom step and I was thinking as I came down the stairs, uh, what do I want to do now? And I turned to my now ex-partner and I said, I'm going to take tea. And she's like, okay, great. And I said, okay, great. And then I started testosterone. And I, I think that like, that I kept thinking and I was like, is it turfy of me to think that this book has to be written by a lesbian? And I was like, I'm still a lesbian though. So, you know, all these struggles of, of going on the journey of all these things and then getting to the, I think I was really, I didn't want to write this book and have a lot of older lesbians not read it mm. because, and, and lose out on that conversation. Like that cross-generational dialogue was so important to me. And I was like, this, the, like the testosterone was not important to me. And as soon as it did, like, as soon as I was like, also I can focus now. I don't have to look at this book anymore. I'm done. Um, but that's definitely focusing how I'm doing my next work. Yeah. 
And I think the shifting and the fluidity and the flux, like the people who couldn't be in my, like that woman who was bisexual, um, who dropped out of my research and wrote me this multi-page letter, like, I'm sorry, and this is my journey. And I'm like, sister, you do you. That, you know, that's great. Like, I'm happy for you found someone you love. Awesome sauce. Like, you know, how rare and magical that you're happy. Like, I'm not going to hold that against you, but so many people are afraid of that. And I think that's, that's hard. And this is, a, I, yeah. no, you've offered so much. I have like so many questions swimming. I mean, first we're going to have to have you talk about your next project at the end. So we'll plug it. Uh, but I really do. If you can speak about, and I'm not going to say that it's going to be controversial, but definitely you brought up the term turf. Um, you've brought up who you thought might be excluded from your readership. So I'm curious, like, did you, when you brought this work out, did you think that there would be people who would raise their eyebrows or there would be a certain backlash from even, especially mm -hmm. LGBTQ people? Um, like, did you think that there would be, um, not critiques of your work, but they're just hesitant to get into your work. I think, I think I did, but I didn't have words for it. I didn't know what it was, but also people who I know tons of older dykes who are, who did read it. Like, I guess Sarah Schulman's considered older now. Um, you know, like, and she read it. I, was, I sent her a copy. I was like, thanks for all that you do. I think you're a queen. Here's a copy. Hope you read it someday. And she wrote a review on Goodreads. I was like, oh my God, is that Sarah Shulman? Like, I, have my copy. Oh, wow. I know, right? Ah! So, um, and, you know, Maxine Wolf, I, she hasn't told me, she, maybe she hates it. I love Maxine Wolf, co-founded the Lesbian Avengers, such a key member of ACT UP, still works at the Lesbian History Archives. Um, but I think there's a, a that, that they, this, I mean, Maxine was just upset I left out the 1970s lesbians from the beginning, but that's a different thing, right? That's like, you know, um, and I, the 1980s lesbians were so unlikely to talk about themselves uh, that the, having the 70s there might quiet them. That's why I, why I started in the 80s. Um, also, it was such a long period of study. My, my advisor was like, please don't do anymore. And you're going to drive me nuts. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think... I think I was worried. I didn't know who those people were like as real human beings. I hadn't met them. Um, but I was also worried that they would miss out on seeing themselves represented. And I thought they might have more compassion for a lot of different other kind of people if they read the book too. Mm. Um, yeah. And now, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead, please continue. Oh, no, I was just the other last thought is like, I, I gave this talk at Bard, which is always the future of the future, you know, like there's so there's certain places in the world that are the future, future of queer things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of my talk, they said, we're identifying as lesbians now. What do you think about that? And I was like, oh, my God, amazing. It was all these like mm -hmm. lesbi, queer, trans people. I absolutely couldn't tell lots of their genders. I was so chuffed. I was like, yes, that's great. Take it back. Do whatever you want with it. That's awesome. Like that was coming. Like, great. You know, so. Yeah. So I was going to ask, um, have you encountered critiques, especially from, you know, the communities, however we're describing them? I mean, in the book, you're tying um, groups that did employ and deployed uh, dyke po politics, right? Mm -hmm. But also tying that to gentrification mm -hmm. and white settler logics. 
did that engender any sort of critique and pushback? Oh, that's a really good question. No, no, people are like, oh God, I did that. I get a lot of, mm. oh God, I did that. Like, thank you for telling me. I get a lot of that. Mm. Um, I've had dozens of people say that to me. Um, I thought I was doing something really good, but whoa, I was, is it okay to curse? Yes, yes, you can. I was an asshole, it was an actual quote. You know, like, um, you know, I thought that I, it, I was really pushing the agenda and I didn't, I didn't see that I was reproducing racial capitalism, um, benefiting from it. Um, of white, white lesbians saying that, white queers. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I had this great talk with Brandy Summers, who's in geography at Berkeley. And we talked about her book and my book, Black in Place. Um, and uh, it was just a book about gentrification in DC, aesthetic gentrification. Uh, and she uh, asked me this great question. She's like, but why didn't you say about all the places that black lesbians couldn't go? Mm. You know, and she's the only one who's pushed me on that. And that was because I didn't think I should, I was like, I really shouldn't write that book. Like there's so many things I didn't get. And only when I, there, you know, I quote Nikki Lane a lot. Nikki Lane's dissertation, I think is one of the most brilliant things I've ever read. Um, and I asked her, I was like, is it okay to quote you a lot? She's like, oh yeah. Um, and just like the point where she said that black lesbians go out more often on Tuesdays because no one's going to mess with them on a Tuesday night. I would have never seen that, right? Like she read all these rhythms and patterns as being a black queer woman. Um, and there's there's just no way of seeing these things or doing these things like our position like going back to positionality like we're we're stuck in those things and we can push ourselves beyond and keep reading and connecting but we're still gonna be limited in these ways and then that links up to somebody else's work like we can't do everything right we're we're always leaning and learning from uh, leaning on and learning from one another yeah well and i want to thank you for your work but also you know i do read a lot of gay white you know, fiction or like what I would call the nostalgic genre of Fire Island, Andrew Holleran, um, you know, a lot of writers who I love. But what I really appreciate, Jack, is that you invite, like you said, you really invite us into your studies and you let the interviews talk for themselves. Um, and what I appreciate is that it doesn't feel like, you know, a gay white male uh, reader is excluded. If anything, I feel that you just offer all these identities to, you know, what encompasses queerness in New York City. And but I am curious, not that I want you to psychoanalyze gay white men, because that's not your job, um, but it could be so fun. But go on. <laughs> it could be. Um, <laughs> But I am curious, like, what do you make out of that? And I think it'll tie into the Gaberhood argument that you're countering, which is what do you make of that nostalgic feeling about the white picket fence or the Fire Island, the P-Town, these very male dominated queer spaces? Like, um, you know, is there is that maybe why you didn't want to go into the Gaberhood area because a lot of that gets you know the visibility in the media is usually gay white male when you think of those places um I think that I was mostly struck 
by how much my participants referenced gay men as everything was against gay men. Like it was what gay men have. It's what gay men have. And I was like, what about all the straight people? You know, and I didn't realize that we always talked like that in group until I read it over and over again. Mm. Um, and that shocked me. Um, and it's kind of like, um, so we're at this point, since it's June, there was a, a moment in May where um, uh, Hill Melatino, a brilliant, wonderful human author of trans care, he, he put a tweet up about you know trans rights or repo rights uh, right after the Alito uh, uh, um, decision was leaked and um, just so many cruel turfy comments uh, back at him. Um, and thinking about like, why are you pushing back against him, right? Why against us? Like, like the world is falling down around us. You, you're going to yell at us about whether or not we have uteruses and what defines a woman. Like we could work together, you silly gooses. Like, you know, like, like we're, we're not going to survive apart. Like we're pushed, we've all been pushed out. Like they want us to fight. We cannot keep doing that. That like they're, they're, they are surviving, you know, by manipulating social media and, and scaring us and pushing it, putting us against one another. And the only, like the only way out, the only way we would ever win is, is to rise up together and to be in coalition. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes to all of that. And also, right, knowing that you're reading limited perspectives. Like if I turn to a very 1970s, you know, um, portrayal of what the gay cruising lifestyle was like, I'm also realizing who wasn't included in that as I'm reading. Like being a more involved reader of yeah. knowing we shouldn't return to, like returning to a place like that um also is going to marginalize fellow lgbtq people or actually just limit them from spaces um but it's also yeah. so romanticized right like when i like started grad school too like michael warner's uh publics and counterpublics had just come out and that like these are all like holy books to me like i, I had had like a oh like this stuff people writing about space like queer space it's like boom, 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 boom. it's so exciting and there was all this assumption like Berlant Warner's sex in public piece was a few years before. And it was like, is sex in public? What are we, I want to do. That's neat. Who's doing that? And then I was like, oh, everyone's talking about gay male cruising. And that was a, that was a big guiding point for me, like reading that over and over of what queer was. And, and then there's that point. I say it in the book too, where my participants are like, well, it's dirty and I don't want to lie down. And I, you know, like, uh, what, you know, why don't lesbians cruise? Like, why aren't they known to cruise? And some of them are like, I cruise, I make eye contact in a bar. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like, I don't know you. I'm going to have sex with you in a park. And then like, oh, it's dirty. It's cold. I, somebody could come along. We're not safe. Like different ways of that, like trans, les, queer, bi people might say. Um, and I remember telling my cis white gay male friends, I have this friend in Oslo, Tim, and he was just like, oh my God, that's Oh, well, I wouldn't want to lie down either. And I like, just like the shock of the geography of the body. Like why, but why were we romanticizing it? You know, like sex is fun for a lot of people. Some people it's not, um, but desire and talking about desire and, and, um, and, you know, gay male desire has this ability of, of, or is portrayed as like, uh, like instant and hot and fiery, and lesbian desire gets, you know, belittled as lesbian bed death, 
and get the quilt and the feather. There's like a great skit on Saturday Night Live about that. That I oh. cut. It's in the dissertation, but I cut it out of the book. Um, yeah, uh, and I I think that there's something about that too. That like kind of that that gets universalized as queer because um, it is so fun. But yeah, it's also yeah, it's totally white. Like going back, like watching Tongues Untied, Marlon Riggs's amazing 1989 documentary. Um, and then when you read Zami, it's the same stories of like all the IDs of being kept out of bars. Like every black queer author is telling us the same thing over time. And we're, and, and white readers are shocked at reading that. Um, mm. And not reading indigenous perspectives and not getting Latinx story. You know, we're just gonna turn to Gloria and Zaldua again, you know, like, okay, she's brilliant, but who, who else is out there? Who else are we not, who else are we not accounting for or hearing from? Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and Asian voices. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, in talking about the different voices and the different narratives, and especially in regards to space, urban space, the spaces that you mention in the book, which voices do you think, now looking back, do you wish could have been included, should have been included, that you would gather for future work? And did you wonder why those voices were absent? Was it something that had to do with methodology or was there something else at play? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I, I was, I, so there were 47 participants for those people listening. And um, I think uh, uh, 13 identified as uh, black and Latinx. There were no Asian participants in my study, no indigenous identified participants. Uh, many of my white participants identified as um, Jewish, um, Armenian, um, uh, everyone identified as working a middle class everyone had gone to college or had some college which everyone was this all my advisors were shocked and then you know it was like isn't that what we do I don't isn't that how we survive I don't know a lot of them um and uh I was really really worried about diversity uh I went to every bar every club every party I could find I went you know went to pride I went to I found parties I had never heard about in places I, I didn't know that on Wednesday nights there was a hookah bar um, with a South Asian lesbian gathering. Oh, wow. And they were like, why are you here? I was like, I have a flyer. Would you join my study? You know, um, and so trying to recruit people um, in these very different ways. But um, I was really, especially including uh, queer and trans Asians, like not having them in Asian Americans in my study and Asians in my study. And I went to the, I was finishing my dissertation. No, I just finished my dissertation. I was writing the book and I went to the anthropology conference and there was a poster and there was a master's student earnestly standing next to a poster that said queer plus Asian, not queer Asian. And I was like, hi, you're my new friend who please 
tell me about your study. And she had so little to go on Michelle Tam. She's now just finishing her PhD in public health, but brilliant master's thesis. I'm talking to all these queer Canadian uh, lesbians and queers, uh, 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 Asian Canadian lesbians and queers and saying, you know, are you queer? And how these two words can't go together because it's not, you're not being fair to your family. So me putting, I'm looking for lesbians and queers is going to eliminate a lot of people who say, well, I can't actually identify as that. I don't want anyone to know. And I did have a lot of people who I'm friends with who are Asian uh, queers and say, well, I can't, like just in case my family finds out. Like all of them said that. And that was a small group. It's not every, everyone, um, but that was one of her findings too. Um, a lot of people didn't fit the age requirement. I had a hundred and some people who wanted to take part. And then with timing, because um, people did, two focus groups across generation, within generation, 80s, it was, um, 80s, 1980s generation, 1990s, 2000s. And then they talked online, it was a lot of commitment. Um, so of course, maybe people who are more working class who don't have time to do that um, or don't have access to resources. Like I lost out on a lot of them. So um, I didn't say I was wheelchair accessible. I didn't have a sign language interpreter. Um, you know, lots of things that would have signaled, hey, I really care about access. Um, and accessibility and disability. I didn't do any of that. Um, I didn't use the word two-spirit. Like I, like at that moment, I didn't think about any of that. And I was trying to be so inclusive. Like if I use lesbian queer, maybe everyone will come, but they didn't. And that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. I am really curious because we're talking about identities and especially the LGBTQ um, acronym has been brought up. Um, you lowercase it. So I need to know, Jack, there needs to be a reason behind this because I don't see it capitalized. I don't see the plus sign. So just walk us through that process. Like how did, like how did that intentionally, you know, get into your thought process? I went back and forth a lot. I read a lot of people writing about what they use, the plus and the asterisk. And I was like, okay, so what my participants used was this. It was LGBTQ. They said that multiple times. Okay, I'm going to go with that. That's like, that's what I, like I, and I was like, should I, and I was like, I didn't have any two-spirit participants. Should I be talking? What, am I excluding them if they don't see that in that way, if you're reading that? Um, and then uh, it, it, it was capitalized. I had to, I had, um, it was capitalized and it just, it stresses out my eyes to see, and I say it all of the time and it really is that simple that i wanted it to be and i also wanted it to be like a kind of like amorphous mass rather than this like strong acronym and i didn't know what that would do but, but it's something that just seemed like more fitting of like this kind of like what is it what who are we rather than the the, the capitalization i love that you caught no one's asked me about it but i i went back and forth a long time and my editor said did you want to do this on purpose? And I said, yes. And they said, okay. So they said, you don't have to have it capitalized. They like, you know, somebody who knows these things looked it up. Um, yeah, but that's, that's why. I just feel like it's a little bit more accessible. Yeah, no, I can see that the way you're explaining it. I mean, I kind of, in a way it almost subdues the letters by allowing maybe more of a personal relationship to each of the identities that you're explaining instead of it just being like right out there, like every time. Um, yeah, no, it makes, it can, I love this. I wanted les queer to be a word and the, the editor was like too far. 
lesbian queer yeah. hyphen. I was like, okay, fine. Right. You know, like I was like, how, where, where can I go? Because also these are the ways we talk to one another, right? We'll say les queer. We'll say these kinds of like that's a that's a queer trans way of operating and recognizing one another in our language. And so um yeah, I also didn't want it. I also felt like if it caps, it was very definite and it was very final. Mm. And I felt like small. It was like, it's not, we don't know what it is. Anybody, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to include anyone or exclude anyone. I'm, I'm trying to include everyone, but I know I can't do that. So I think that's, that's part of the process too. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm. and if you, you can, just because for our listeners, um, you talk a lot about just, looking into this idea of your core argument, which is, you know, you're going to counter the myth of um, the LGBTQ neighborhood um, liberation by looking at how lesbian queer spaces keep regenerating in a way or keep recreating themselves. And if you can talk about that moment, I know Stephanie and I were like going back and forth of all the ideas about your argument. Um, I just think it's very intriguing. Um, because, you know, you, you, you're saying you're turning away from that model of the neighborhood, the LGBTQ neighborhood model. So yeah, if you can get into like why yeah. that core argument. Yeah, and to also add yeah. on to that, the idea of the gay village model, right? Mm -hmm. The neighborhood specifically. And, you know, the idea of constellations resists that and critiques that, I think, at the same time. So, yeah, I would love to hear, too, about the tension there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I was, um, I think I was really sad at first listening to everyone tell me when I said, what's in, what do you think is a lesbian queer space? I asked each group that I taught, all 47. There were, so there are 22 focus groups with the 47 participants. And they would all say, oh, a, neighbor, a space was a neighborhood and a place was a bar. And then, oh, but it doesn't really work for me. Oh, you know, it's not there anymore. And this constant sadness, and then they would blame themselves. And that was the queer art of failure stuff that I bring in from, from mm -hmm. Halberstam. And I, I'm definitely a turn that frown upside down kind of person, but also it wasn't like, I just want you to be happy. It wasn't, it wasn't like some affective determination. It was more like, did you see everything you did? It was kind of amazing. Sister, brother, themster, like, I'm totally amazed. Like, we survived. That's freaking incredible. Like, how did we make a women's neighborhood in New York City? Whoa, amazing. And it, of course it wasn't going to stay there, right? Like only, but only hearing the stories over and over and over again from all these people and realizing that I blamed myself too, that I like, so I videoed everything. And then I wrote down the nods and the, the big hand gestures and the crying and the laughing um, and who was doing what? Cause there were so many people talking once I needed the video and then sitting and watching and transcribing sitting and watching transcribing and listening and watching myself nod and be like, oh, I believe that too, but we're not all wrong. I mean, like we're not all, we didn't all mess up that's we're just blaming ourselves that's sad um and I thought we were kind of stuck there and I have always been really interested in the geographical imagination like how we imagine space to be and what is it is it you know and um that's helped me really 
you know, Hillel Tino's new book, Side FX, talks about disassociation and all the ways that trans people survive. I think the geographical imagination of queer and trans people is a, a massive method of dissociative survival. Um, and the, the neighborhood has worked like that. The neighborhood has been like that. Um, I just thought it wasn't ever going to work anymore. Like we had reached, like the condos had outpaced queers um, and that we had been organizing in different ways that really did what we wanted to do. And also as like, not like white cisgender men, we were never gonna hold a territory. Like who is this group that holds the territory? And um, for like over a prolonged period of time. And if that, and then I had gone to Germany, I had a fellowship um, and I was writing the dissertation and I went to a place called Rat on Tat, which was this 1980s lesbian founded hangout. And the state, gives money to women's spaces and lesbian spaces for them to remember. what like mind blown and i'm sitting in this room that's covered in dust like no one's reading these 19 interview would love it you would find such fun things to read there i'm sure very sexy and then this room and these old toys and you could see just like layers of history and i just started crying it's like we don't have anything like this in new york there's no residue there's no like left like the lesbian history archives is the closest thing and they're like always having to ship things out of the space because it's not big enough um and to think how we could be sedentary and we could be in place and then i saw how american it was that was the first time i realized it wasn't just about new york because i kept writing about new york new york and i was like oh this is the american dream we're feeling the american dream and that that blew it up to this other level for me and that's when i started thinking of neighbor and then constellations the other argument about thinking about how um you know my participants find one another and make place they all talked about oh well, our places are really spread out and oh it's closed now they're all gone and the ones that are there are always spread out um and my advisor and i were sitting and talking and she's reading some transcripts cindy katz she's a geographer and she was like why are they all talking about their bodies all of the time so what do you mean she's like all they do is talk about their bodies i said no they don't Oh God, they do. Do I do that? I guess I do that. I was like, I did. Is it something we? Is it something cis women, straight women, don't do? Like I didn't know. Like I wasn't hanging out, not talking with about my body with you. Um, and she's like, I just think it's really interesting that they're hyper aware of their bodies in space. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized it was like that they were always thinking about where they would navigate and how they would go and how would they get there safely, and who did they know and how is the lighting going to help them and how are the businesses safe to walk by right and where were the cat callers and they knew all of this and so there were these massive maps also the subway lines in new york city were so important um that structured these constellations like plate stars that come and go in the sky and it's like this um and cindy had suggested oh it's like an archipelago of places come and go and i was like oh but the water comes up and the water goes down and the places are still there like this is like a light goes out and it's oh it's like a star um and i mean Gaziani has talked about you know, gay archipelagos of like gay men's spaces, like extending past neighborhoods and being these little like dots of spaces to go from. Um, and I, but the constellations too was really trying to say the territory is not going to work. And this is this amazing way of organizing that kind of hurts you and leaves you fragmented and isolated and lonely at times. But also if you intentionally organize like this, what could our worlds look like? That was what I was really interested in. Um, so I was hoping that constellations would be like uplifting.
to people in that way. Um, yeah. And also well, the lesbians love astrology. That was the other reason constellations really fit. You know, there's a, there's, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and it feels like you're bringing to bear something that what I love when we talk with an author is making me think of, oh, you're right. Not only were the participants talking about their body or how they were navigating these spaces in New York City, but also a certain feeling that they were going to be called out for not belonging in that space. And like, I have memories of that myself. Like, even if I go to Fire Island and the Pines in the back of my mind, I'm like, wait, am I going to, you know, make it through this space? Like, am I going to be called out? Like, you know, have I done all the gay, white, cisgender things that I need to do to like be part of the party? And, you know, there's a lot of pressure. So I think where does that pressure come from is a question I always think of, or why can we not just belong as an LGBTQ community yeah. and have this open door policy? And yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's so funny. Cause it's like, and also like the pines, it's, it's not there really in the winter. So it's, we're going to reproduce itself every summer, right. And every spring, summer, fall, there's going to be these certain uh, rituals of it. Um, I just had, a, I had an amazing master's student, Ivy Monroe, write a really great thesis on Fantasia fair which is the oldest cross-dresser gathering um, in, uh, in, in P-Town every, every fall. Um, and to think about like how these are reconstituted every year, these spaces in the same way. Like I, you know, like boys, like the boy, and it's always about the boys at P-Town, the boys from New York, the boys from Boston. And I was like, what? Like my gay boyfriends tell me these things. I'm like, what is that? That's fascinating. We never do that. That's funny. You know? Um, and just like, listening to these different ways of operating and the shame and what's with gay men and turning 30 like oh how sad what is you're so pretty at 30 don't you worry about a thing you know I think and I think there's like so many trans norms too about what beauty is, obviously like what beauty is and what's acceptable and um yeah and I yeah I, I think these spaces really stress us out but we're also so desperate to be recognized that we keep doing these things over and over again, expecting like a different result. Well, I mean, space speaks to legibility, speaks to visibility, right? And then we're always internalizing the gatekeepers, trying to reach that criteria, that standard um, that so few of us do, right? And it's usually white, cisgender people. We're talking about the universal subject before, right? And that's who the gatekeepers tend to be, and that's who we internalize. Yeah. So, I mean, we started earlier before talking about, am I enough? Andrew's brought it up. There's only 24 hours in a day, so I won't get into it. But I mean, really, we keep going back and forth. And I, I'm also a little bit sad that this is a continuing issue with this community. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think, too, like the pandemic made it worse, right? Or the mm. pandemic froze it in a moment of social media feeds. Like, what is a lesbian? I love these like super old dykes recording this is what I'm as a lesbian, like people from the South, people from the Midwest, like nerdy old dykes just telling their stories are like that. I like, and these numbers are blowing up on them. Like these young queer kids are like learning their history from just people sharing their stories is awesome. I love that. I, but also like you're in a TikTok feed and it's just going to like lead you to think in a certain way and your social media feed 
um, your Instagram is going to lead you to think in a certain way and have these versions of things um, and see people who mostly look like you. Like you tend to like people who look like you and then you see the same things and it, you were like, okay, that's how I'll be queer. Do you, you guys know the Lex app? I love the Lex app. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, 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 please explain. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an app for everyone but cis men, Andrew. So oh, it's, okay. it's, it's yeah. So, yeah, but it is a text-based app. So it's based on the On Our Backs, Sexy Personals which was like a lesbian bisexual magazine from the 90s. They were very, very hot, very dirty, very hot. And then they started making text-based personals on this account called Lesbian History Personals um, on Instagram, and they created um, an app. And so it's all text-based. There's no pictures. You can click through and get to a picture now or be linked to an Instagram. And um, if you watch the Lex Instagram videos or the TikTok videos, they're obsessed. They're all these 20 year olds, right? And they're obsessed, they're fucking obsessed with um, uh, uh, iced coffee as a lesbian queer thing to do. And I'm like, am I just old? What is this? What is this thing with iced coffee? Like a carabiner. I get it. Like, I get why that's a big dyke thing to do. It's useful for your keys and you, you might go rock climbing. You're going to help somebody tow something. That's like a dyke thing to do. But uh, iced coffee, I cannot fathom why this is an like a symbol for one another but they all think it and now when i meet like 20 something dykey people i'm like what do you think about iced coffee oh that's very gay when what what did the internet make of our why are we all drinking iced coffee it's so funny to me as i sip my iced coffee yes (laughs) yes i five what how when i've never heard of it in a queer reading so this is very intriguing i will send you the tiktok video please please oh my god well stephanie the 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 iced coffee thing no okay i'm a little bit older than that i'm gonna carbon date myself a little bit older than that perfect not a fan of iced coffee like i like my coffee hot and black read into that as we will i know it's like are we spicy then if we like it huh? i don't know yeah no i'm like an ice person in the winter too but unless it's in the morning i like hot coffee but um i do so i don't want to engage have you engage with the trolls or bring up oh. people who we know we could just debate back and forth but what i think might be more productive is like especially what you're teaching us with your idea of the constellation and how lesbian and queer people are thinking about their lives, their bodies, their spaces in New York City. Is there any media representation, you know, mainstream media that you think does kind of represent the idea of the constellation that you bring up or is actually doing it right? I I think... I do think the Lex app is doing it. I think that people are working in that way from there. Um, I, th- <laughs> I think people think that, you know, I think there were moments that the L word and our chart, the R chart, a thing of L word were who hooked up with who uh, is something people connect to a lot um, from there, but I don't I, know. Is there any mainstream media? Like, how about Pose? Have you seen Pose? Oh, well, God, yes. No, oh, totally. Okay. I was thinking of, like, I was thinking of, yes, but I was thinking fourth, foremost, like, Pose, I think, is one of the most beautiful things ever made. I think more movies than TV. I was going through TV shows, hmm. and I'm, I'm not, yeah, I think more movies. And now, and now I'm, like, totally 
I'm like upset. I was thinking all theory right now. I'm not in my movie brain and I'm like a TV movie obsessive. So this is no, well, if it comes into your brain, just shout it out. But even like euphoria has had some interesting queer transgender, like um, plot lines. But I've always said with euphoria, they're not into explaining identity. They just show. It's a very visceral show if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I haven't watched all of it. I, what was it like? I think that there's like, I feel like there's different kind of movies and ways of thinking. Something that's really old that does it is by Hook or by Crook. Um, that trans buddy film, I think is really, it was like, like Jack Halberstam talks about it in a, in, in a queer time and place. Um, like Silas Howard is in that. It's really, it's like, it's old. It's like 90s. Early 2000s. And um, the reason, yeah. And the reason I asked Jack is because I was saying to Stephanie, I can't wait to just ask Jack, like, can you point us to the constellations? Just because, like, I am a very wanting to know and feel touched, like, understand the concept. Like, yeah. Or is it a thing like the word queer, where it's not supposed to be felt in its whole essence, where it's. Oh almost out of your reach every time you think you know what this kind of queer constellation idea is. I think it's like the life. It's like your life course. Like you saw that girl and she was so cute. And then that girl became a guy and you're like, am I still a lesbian? And what happened? And then should I go to this bar? No, I can't go to this bar. And it's kind of like, it's very Ahmedian, like phenomenological queer orientations, right? And like what, I think also what constant like I was trying to grasp grapple with was that there was so much about making LGBTQ places in geography. And then there was a lot about lesbians making networks. And then it was like the territory and these are different shapes of objects. And I was like, how do these things go together? Because we seem to do them all. And why are they always separate? Um, and so like, I feel like if anything, I extended, extended, uh sarah ahmed's uh like idea of orientations by really focusing on the placemaking too and how that keeps making sense like when you like i I think of it a lot of like there's this plate there's this place on 18 on 8th avenue in the middle of 14th street that i my girlfriend came to visit me from minnesota in 2002 and i thought she got lost because she was from minnesota and i was so worried we're supposed to go to the movies and I was looking for her everywhere. It's like, we, we don't have cell phones yet. And or we just got them. And I turn around and she's standing there and she got me flowers in the middle of 8th Avenue. And like forever, like anytime I cross that or I see that, like I'm filled with that moment of being like, oh, hi, you know? Um, and then we're going to go to that movie and then we're going to go home and East of 8th, that gay restaurant I used to love is there. Um, and these places are still like, as you walk around and matter, but this is really di- different if we're like, if you're rural or suburban, if you're sub- rural suburban, like everything's really car driven, right? And how the Walmart, if you're especially rural um, is especially important. Like, you know, you, that's where you can get all your clothes. It's where you can do drag, you know, that's that's it. It's all you got, it's really rural. Um, and if you're suburban, you're in your car. Like one of my participants was like, I lived my entire adolescence in my car so that I could be gay. So I could hold hands with my girlfriend. There's nowhere to go. Um, and so you don't have the neighborhood or even the idea of it to go to. You don't have Christopher Street um, and how you make space differently and how, but you're still in movement. Like the, the necessity to keep moving to like survive and thrive 
um, and also this like desire for a resting place, a place to be with other people to kind of like keep going and moving again. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Is that I'm just make, in all? That... I'm in all of all of this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And like, oh, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just gonna say, like, and I am in Long Island suburbia. Stephanie is in the city um, in New York. And like, what's been interesting in suburbia, like I go back and forth between Manhattan, Brooklyn and suburbia. But in suburbia, it's interesting because sometimes I feel because there's less people, but there's a lot of independent bars and places. And I get, I hang out with a lot of people around here. There's a way to teach LGBTQ issues in suburbia that can be different than in the city because sometimes you're one of their only representations of the LGBTQ community. So it's like, not to say like you have a huge weight on your shoulder, but it can be like a lot of teaching moments, I find. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It looks like Stephanie, I think Stephanie, she's ready for something. Yeah, so I mean, I want to touch upon teachable moments because I think that adds a whole other dimension. And also talking from my own trans experience, the idea of we don't always get a choice in those teachable moments, right? Sometimes it's thrust upon us. Um, Sometimes we just want to go out and go to the movies Mm -hmm. and then maybe we're misgendered or something. And it's just like, oh, do I really want to make this political in this moment? I know there are some people who enjoy that, who live for that. Uh, Me, I like to pick and choose and be able to have that choice, that agency. And sometimes I literally don't, Yeah, you know? So, but it's also interesting how that plays into the idea of, Constellation. So I do want to just come back for a moment because in listening to both um, Andrew and Jack here, I'm struck about how memory is used, mm. how that's a dynamic force in the the um, shaping of constellations. Mm. So I was wondering if if Jack, you could speak a little bit more about the force of memory and also who owns it mm. and who doesn't, and then how does that shape Right, because in a way, then memory becomes a metric of power. Yeah, and that's even more interesting when you're imagining things to survive, right? When you're dissociating to survive, right? And what is the memory? Were you there? Was I there? <laughs> what would happen? Like, what what really happened at that bar? What was it like? Um, but what you just said, wait, I have this great quote from Hill Melatino Trans Care because I love this. Was my favorite quote. Um, he says, sometimes being trans feels like wanting to resist and evade spectacularized visibility with every fiber of your being. Sometimes it feels like just wanting to be seen in all your banality, sleepily chomping on a banana while wearing sweatpants. And I think I like I, I um, yeah, I just wanted to, to say thank you. Yeah, I just love that quote so mm-hmm. much. Um, yeah, I th- and I feel like the um, how memory works is really interesting well, for me the thing that was weird about memory was how agitated my committee members were about me interviewing people who had come out 25 years before that they might not remember. And I'm like, you must be straight. Cause I don't think anybody forgets that, especially coming out in 1983. You're going to remember what that was like. You're going to remember what it's like coming out in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. You're going to remember what pride was like. Remember act up was like, you know, there was like stickers, weepies. How would you forget? Like that was profound to me. 
Um, and I think the other, the, that I, that I, that's why I did the archival. I wanted to do the archival work, but they were really pushing that. And I think what was helpful to me was that my participant, like proving my participants right. Like so many times they would tell a story and I would check, I would like, they would say things like, oh, that protest in the Bronx. And it would just pass as a small comment. And then I would the transcribe and I would be like, wait, what was the protest in the Bronx? And so then I would be in the archives and there was this really deeply, wildly homophobic um, uh, representative on the Bronx City Council uh, for years that everyone was fighting against this guy. He was diabolical. He was really, really cruel. And I had to like put together who was on what council, what year to like figure out what they were talking about. Um, but I think that like sometimes um, those, those memories might be off by a year or something or site, something might be collapsed, but they were really accurate. Um, and I think that that's all you've got to pr prove that you were, you're sane, right? I'm going to keep these memories. Like I, I was there, I was loved. Um, I was sexy. I was desired. I had friends. Like, you know, we were not alone. Like people listened to us. We made change. Like that was really important to people. Um, so I think, yeah, I didn't think about it that way until I said that. Um, but I was, I was really weirded out that my committee thought that they wouldn't remember. I was like, yeah, I mean, would you guys forget? I don't, I would never forget. No, I don't even it, forget, right? not even just coming out, but I don't even forget. Like when I was a child and I went to New Hope, cause, um, I'm from Jersey and my dad's side still lives in the Bucks County area. So I would go to New Hope every summer. Yeah. And there were so many um, LGBTQ, but mostly gay and lesbian couples. And um, like, I saw that represented even though I didn't know my own identity worded. So like, it meant a lot to just have it part of my childhood. Um, but yeah, like, I'm never gonna forget those memories because they form a part of yourself. So. Yeah, yeah, your your committee's yeah. hesitance with that. I mean, they should not have worried about that aspect yeah. at all. Yeah. What, were they worried about some sort of um, failing of imperialism? Yeah. yeah, they thought they might be biased or they might blur things or they might be like the nostalgia might take over. I'm like, would you really be nostalgic when you think you might die? I don't mm. think you'd be nostalgic for, you know, like it's such a big moment like that. I right. was just, yeah. Yeah, so as we're wrapping up, sadly, our time always it's flies true. by, but it's, it's like true. you feel like you're just getting started. But, you know, yeah. uh, well, we will have Jack back on again. And Stephanie will have to be the co-host with Jack's new work. But <sighs> I know, forward. I know. So, I mean, I want to ask you um, just what are you working on? Like, what is this new work that has more of your identity embedded in it? Mm. So it's called Dyke Bars with an asterisk Ooh. at the end. And it is, um, there are very few books on Dyke Bars, lesbian bars, queer trans bars. So I um, got a lot of calls from a lot of journalists during the pandemic about the end of lesbian bars. And I got so tired of the same questions. I started ranting. I just filled yellow notepads of papers ranting because I thought I would never write about the, the lesbian bar. I was like, oh God, if I have one more person ask me about that. Um, but the more I started ranting, the more I saw how important they were and the idea of that in a space of coalition building, in a space where 
uh, the idealization of a multiracial, multi-class, um, completely accessible space exists and it continues to fail. Um, and that's why so many of them close. Um, but why do we hold on to that and how does it work? And so I'm using the, the trans asterisk to open up what the dike bar really was, what it, what it is, what it could be, what it is and what it yet could be. I'm trying to imagine, like use radical imaginations of, of people talking about lesbian bars and dyke bars over the years um, and films about dyke bars and yeah. Well, this is exciting. Of- Do you have a uh, publication date yet? Oh my God, no, 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 no. Oh, I am finished. Right. <laughs> oh my God, okay. no. Well. You know, I might, I don't know. I haven't even, I have not talked. I've talked to a bunch of presses, but I, I don't know. I might try to. Um, no, but I will plug Gregor Mat- Matson's beautiful book on gay bars, which I don't know. Wait, hold on one second, because it's literally lying here. I get a pre-copy. I'm so Oh, excited. yes, yes. Let's see it. Yeah. And that is coming out. Oh, it's coming out with Redwood Press. Um, yeah. And uh, like, uh, it, like I got it. He sent me a copy to read. He's so dear. He's a wonderful human being. I hope he's listening to this. Gregor, you're just the, one of the, you're a mensch. Who needs gay bars? Bar hopping through America's iconic LGBTQ plus places. Um, and he went to all these small town gay bars and talked to the drag queens who run all of them and the owner, the drag queens who work between them and the owners who work between them. And my bar is, my book is going to be so wildly different um, and is really just like thinking about dyke bars. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about working on next. And I do think that that, that book using the trans asterisk, I will get a lot more pushback. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, well, and we'll be ready and we'll be here for you to talk about it um, and talk about those critiques. Cause the critiques, I don't know. I think it always is helpful to just hear how others are debating, but Hopefully they're learning more from reading your book than you having to defend it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Trans rights are repo rights. I'm going to add that here. And uh, yes. Yes. Oh, good, good. Well, I will ask you more about your friend's book when we're off air. Um, but Stephanie, anything you want, since you are the guest co-host to end our interview? No, on? I do want to say that the idea of constellations has been um, unique and powerful and generative as I work on queer spaces, all gender spaces, and especially how um, memory informs them, holds them together, especially as I look in, for instance, LGBTQ plus uh, community centers, and especially um, alternative sex and fetish parties, Ooh. how those get remembered, especially during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so, so helpful. So oh my God, I totally so want to listen to you talk about that for hours. Oh my God. So oh my God. So, yeah. Stephanie will have to publish that into a book. Oh, um, well, one more other plug of a book. One more, yes, uh, one yes. more. Two, actually two more. Kemi Adeyemi's book is coming out with Duke soon. And that's about black queer. That's going to be the first book about black queer women's spaces. Um, academic book. That's going to be amazing. And it's about different dance clubs in Chicago and Rox Samer book just came out lesbian potentiality um and that's with duke too and that is like wild 1970s sci-fi avant-garde lesbian feminism and how lesbian feminism has really gotten foreclosed on it's actually a more radical wild thing those books are dope oh nice (laughs) yeah well and i you know everyone listening we have audience out there who run the gamut from academics to just literary enthusiasts to entertainment um, 
LGBTQ people. So, you know, I want everyone to know, and Jack has gone through everything um, in a queer New York, but not everything that you shouldn't buy the book because there's so much more nuance and detail. So make sure you get your hands on a queer New York. I'm going to hold it up again for those who watch the video interview, but you will see it on our social media. Um, So please get your hands on a queer New York. It is just, well, one, aside from George Chauncey, the only other book I really can turn to that looks into New York City's power with all different LGBTQ identities. I mean, it adds so much more to George Chauncey's book. So for that, Jack, I want to thank you because we're going to return to this book a lot. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, and bye to the listeners. (laughs) Bye everyone. Have a great day, night, morning, being. (laughs) Wow, Stephanie, that was so exciting with Jack. It's, all things we wanted to get to with a queer name. And more, and more. Yes, and more. And so many academics mentioned, so many creative writers. I mean, my head is swimming with recommendations. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. So to all our listeners, I just want to thank you, Stephanie, for being a co-host, for coming back on in this capacity. I was saying to Stephanie, she needs to come back again. So yeah. please. And thank you for providing not only the opportunity and not to be punny, but the space for this to be discussed. Thank you for having this forum that we can all meet together to exchange ideas, right? And to create knowledge in, in, in doing that. So thank you. Well, it is my pleasure, but also just why I started this podcast because I, Stephanie helped me think of my mission and even more catchy ways with a metaphor, which is we really hope that when you were listening to us with Jack, you thought you were at your local coffee shop, you're sitting at a table, and then you just stumble upon the three of us chatting away. And it's relaxed, it's informative, but most of all, it's enjoyable. So, you know, with that in mind, thank you, Stephanie, for getting me to that coffee shop metaphor. Um, (laughs) I'm going to put it on all the branding. Um, Yes. And speaking of branding, Stephanie, um, can you please tell everyone out there how they can follow Stephanie Bonvasudo's work on social media? Sure. So right now I'm, I'm, I have a uh, Twitter. I can be found on uh, Facebook and Instagram and looking to expand on to TikTok for both um, to share both academic. Yeah. I think there's a space to think about academia uh, and TikTok. I think that dynamic exists, uh, but also to make it uh, for us to share some art with that too. So look look for me there. Yeah, and with all your research, I can already see the TikTok ideas, like queer sex parties. I mean, <laughs> there could be some very intriguing um, snapshots of your research that you oh my God, I share that see, way. <laughs> I already see my TikToks being banned, being called down and flagged, and I'm there for that. Hope I you're am all there for there that, too. for that. But also, <laughs> I have learned so much with discussions we've had about nudity and media on this podcast and sex and sexuality mm-hmm. that there's certain hashtags you can't even use on TikTok. So we'll have to, I'll, we'll have to find those TikTok um, 
creators, the um, higher They're ups. out there. They're out there. And I want to know why we can't have certain material in a adult space on TikTok. But for, for another time. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yes, yes. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And to our thank listeners, you, we mm-hmm. hope that, you know, reach out to us. You know, let us know what you learned from this. I can't wait to hear, you know, what recommendations you're now going to read or watch. So, yeah, reach out to us on social media um, at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Okay, thank you, Stephanie, and bye, everyone. Take care. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia. Welcome to our summer season. We made it to summer 2022. I am here with Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello. I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director. Mary DePippi is our chief contributor. Uh, Nicole Arguello is our marketing assistant. And Kimberly Dallas is our editor. So yay, our interns have positions. Okay. Yay. Um, please, please follow us on social media. We Mary posts so many creative things on her True Crime and Academia. How can they follow True Crime, Mary? At True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok. Okay. And then you can follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room and at Ivory Tower Boiler Room on, ready? Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Okay. And you can email us. Um, we love to get pitched some episode ideas. So to do that, if you're a publicist out there, maybe you want to get one of your authors on our show go to ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. Uh, thank you to our audience, to our listeners. We're really excited because we have a lot going on on our Patreon. So Mary, do you want to maybe update everyone on our Patreon account? Yes. Yeah, so aside from the content that we've already been giving you, we will also be having extra special episodes. Um, specifically for true crime, I will be having an extra bonus episode every month starting in June. <gasps> Yeah, and the only same- get that yes. if you are a subscriber. Yes. So patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. That's it. Just slash ivory tower boiler room. And Easy. we already have a lot of bonus material. First, there is a full episode um, with Ursula Klein in our book corner. So you're going to see all of these new special series that are going to pop up in the summer on ivory tower boiler room. Yes, Mary will do it too on True Crime and Academia. You can listen to a teaser on our podcast, but guess where the whole interview is? On our Patreon. So only a cup, not a cup, but a large cup of iced coffee um, at any of our favorite coffee companies. Um, You only have to pay $5 a month. So please join. We will recognize all of you who join. We'll shout you out during the summer. Um, You can see our video interviews too. And if you want to become an ivory tower, $15 a month, three cups of iced coffee uh, member, you actually will get our tote bag, our t-shirt. There's more, there's more. Oh, our mug. I'm drinking from our mug. (laughs) I should, for everyone who will see this, I'm actually holding it up. It's a very cool mug. So we are so excited for all of you to join us this summer. I love hearing from all of you. I know Mary loves hearing from all of you. Mm-hmm. Direct message us. We read them. And 
yeah, check out our social media because we post so many clips from the shows. And I started to kind of finesse my way around TikTok. So Mary sees mm-hmm. how excited I get when I know how to add music and all these filters. <laughs> so um, on that note, um, please, please join us for our Instagram events this summer. We have a monthly book club. Every month we have our book club and we're going to start having television recaps. Um, we're going to have another open mic poetry event at Pen and Brush. So stay tuned. I think we might have a Halloween party, but just someone told me that. Okay. A little birdie. A little birdie. Okay. I think we got it all, Mary. So I think so. On that note, let's put a bookmark in this. Yep. Bye, everyone.